0: good morning. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. Um, As you uh, heard earlier, we've got a bunch of things happening um, in our church. We are officially on the other side of Labor Day, uh, Labor Day weekend, which means that it's a new season, right? It means that uh, even though it's still sort of like 100 degrees outside, uh, it may still feel like summertime, but the tourists are gone for the most part, right? So we've uh, pretty much reclaimed the beaches from the tourists, and so that's uh, also, not only can we, but we are going to reclaim the beaches from the tourists uh, this coming week. So next week, say next week, we have the opportunity to celebrate baptisms, this is exciting. So, um, we are going to celebrate new life in Christ through the ordinance, say ordinance, of baptism. Now, that's one of those big theological terms, right? So, you hear something like sacred ordinance. It, it, it's like, am I being arrested? What's happening? But it's actually a powerful, even authoritative statement that we get straight out of God's word. We understand an ordinance is something that has been ordained for the church to do. It's something God has said, hey, church, I have established you, started you, I'm kicking you off, and I'm commanding you to baptize. He's also commanded us to do something else, participate in communion. Okay, and so uh, baptism, so those are the two sort of sacred ordinances, and I'm going to talk a bit more about that this morning, but uh, baptism is the outward proclamation of our inward faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so uh, we get to dunk these brothers and sisters next week in the Atlantic. It's going to be great. It's one of my favorite things about being on the beach is that we get to baptize people in the ocean. It's a beautiful illustration. I love it. Um, and so uh, we're, the, the picture of baptism— we're going to talk more about this even next week, but the picture of baptism isn't just being baptized into the ocean or washing your sins away. All of those things, it, is, uh, sign- it does signify those things, but it's also an embrace into gospel community. It's like an embrace into the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, an immersion into him and resurrection life. And so we're going to get to do that. And so if you're interested in being baptized, if you've not been baptized as a believer in Christ, um, then I'd like for you to, I want to encourage you to come speak with me or even anyone with a lanyard on. You can go talk to the person at the uh, Next Steps table. Um, we'd love to speak with you about that. Uh, also, uh, we're going to be doing this at 64th Street uh, on the Ocean Front at 3 p.m. next week. Uh, and so parking can be a bit... Uh, It could be a bit of a struggle down there, so uh, go ahead and put that on your calendars uh, for September 17th. Mark it on your calendars and prepare to claim your parking spots at the oceanfront so we can embrace one another and celebrate what God uh, is doing in people's lives. Um, So now also, many of you know that through the summer, and maybe if it's your first time this morning, Welcome. But this past summer, we have been walking through the Sermon on the Mount. We walked verse by verse through all 103 verses of the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, I know that it was extremely challenging and encouraging to me. And I I think it was for you as well. Um, I I know that I love Jesus uh, even more after walking through that sermon. Um, And so we also, uh, after our... um, midweek summer night series, which we did through the summer. We're going to be launching our community groups, as Jess said earlier. Um, Yeah, we're going to be launching our community groups next week uh, also. So it's a big week next week. We're going to be having our community group fair. We're going to be baptizing people. We're going to be entering into this fall season. So um, it's a good time to connect. It's a great time for you to be here and get connected to our church. Uh, We'll be introducing you to those leaders next week, and we'll provide more opportunities to meet with them and learn a bit more about these groups. So, got a lot more in store. I don't have time to get into all the things that we have for this fall, but uh, we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. But um, I got a sermon the Lord has laid on my heart, uh, and so let's dive in. This morning, as I mentioned, we are going to talk about the significance of communion. Say communion. Now, depending on what your background is, it's likely that we have an extremely diverse spectrum of experiences regarding communion. You might even use different terms. You might say things like the Eucharist, right? You might say things like the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table. Some might even call it the elements or the host. Okay? So there's a lot of different terms, um, and, and still others may be just confused about it altogether. And after all of those terms, I probably have confused at least the majority of you in here with these terms. So um, that's okay, because what I want to do is bring some clarity to the power and purpose behind communion for everyone this morning. Um, and, and ultimately, communion, I want you to see that it is the consistent celebration and participation. Together in Christ Himself. Let me explain what that means. But if that's true, then nothing could be more relevant than communion, right? Like if you're here this morning, you're like, "Yeah, I just I need to learn how to steward my finances better. I I need to learn how to get along with my parents better. I need to learn how to get to, to, to parent my children better." Something like that, right? That feels like it might be more relevant or more practical. Nope telling you, communion, and it actually impacts all of those other things, I'm going to explain that in a bit. So for the rest of our time, I want, you know, uh, I, I, we're going to walk through this passage in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 through 26. We're going to let the Apostle Paul himself cast a little vision for us about what communion is and the kind of people that we've been set apart to be as the local church, a local covenant community, okay? And so, as a roadmap for the rest of our time, I've got three things we're reminded of and celebrate when we take communion together. All right? Number one, we're reminded of the new covenant we share together in Christ. Number two, we're reminded of the new community that we belong with in Christ. And then, number three, we're reminded of the new commission we've been given by Christ. So, we've got new covenant, new community, and new commission. So that's our framework. That's our scaffolding. Let's go. So here's what I want you to get this morning. If you get nothing else, this is what I want you to get. Communion with God and his people is primary in fulfilling his commission. Okay? So communion with God and his people is primary in fulfilling his commission. So Again, 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26, we're gonna be in that passage, but first I wanna set this up with a little context. So 1 Corinthians is a letter that the apostle Paul wrote to this church in Corinth, the ancient church of Corinth. Um, and so just before this section that we've just read, um, it, it's clear that Paul is actually rebuking these guys for flippant, uh, for flippantly treating communion Um, in a way that's sort of unworthy, is what he, kind of language that he tends to use, an unworthy manner. So what we see is apparently they were having uh, essentially just a party to satisfy their bellies more than a sacred event that satisfies their souls. He had already explained to them what communion was. He had been there and he talked to them about it, but then he hears about how they're celebrating communion, and he's just kind of like, you guys are missing the point. Like they lost sight of the sacred meaning and purpose of communion. They lost sight of the why behind the what. And that tends to be a theme with religious people, right? Right? Think about it. You lose sight of the why behind the what. People just go through these empty rituals. They don't even know what it is. It's like, I don't even understand this language, but somehow it's going to just Wash over me magically and do something to me, but I'm completely disconnected and I'm thinking about lunch right now. But just because I showed up, somehow this is going to do something. So we operate religiously, mechanically sometimes, and we kind of check out. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to help us to check in with the why behind the what, especially in regards to what communion is, this sacred ordinance Again, a sacred ordinance, what it essentially means is that, yes, it's something that God has commanded the church itself to do, and it also means that uh, there's something more to what you're seeing. There's something deeper happening, okay? If we celebrate, again, two main ordinances, communion and baptism, and we hold both of them as sacred, again, that means simply that they point to more than just eating or taking a bath. There's more going on. It signifies something deeper. And what it signifies is essentially who Jesus is and what he's done for you. It's a participation, an experiential immersion, or even a feasting on who he is and what he's done. But the Corinthians had lost sight of Christ, and Paul is here reminding them to keep Jesus and this gospel of grace front and center in this sacred celebration. So 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20, so just before the section that we're going to really dive into, this is what Paul says to them. He says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk. What? That's how I interpret him saying that. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Now, I want to be careful here, because often when we read these passages, we can read them out of context. And if you read that out of context, you think, Paul's kind of a jerk, right? And a lot of people will justify their own harsh temperaments by, utilize, by taking, especially the way he talks to the Corinthians, because the Corinthians were a little bit crazy, um, and they'll justify kind of being mean by taking things out of context. We need to understand here that he's not just chewing them out, okay? Like, he kind of is. Like, let's, let's, be, let's be real. He's, he's not happy about this. But it's important to realize that he's just been commending them for so many great things. Okay? And so it, the way that he phrases this actually makes it clear that he wants to commend them even more because he wants to encourage them, because he loves them. But yet it's because he loves them that he has to address this issue. Like he wants to commend them. But he's like, shall I commend you in this? I can't. Oh, I can't. I can't commend you here. This is a pretty bad situation. You're missing the point. And so you, you, you've lost the sight of Jesus in a sacred celebration. So he reminds them of what he's already taught them. And so he says this in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So the first thing Paul points out here Um, about communion is that it's a reminder of the new covenant that we share together in Christ. Say, new covenant. Now, (laughs) maybe it was different for ancient Corinth, but here in the 21st century, in America, we don't tend to think about life in terms of covenants and blood, right? Right? Like, this, is, this sounds like, if you didn't really have any idea, like, if you're new to church or any of this stuff, and you come and you just read this, you're going to be like, what kind of cult is this? Right? Like, this sounds weird. This language, though, wasn't just, it's not just weird for us in the 21st century. I want you to see that this language was strange even for the ancient Corinthians. These were not Hebrews. They didn't really have a grasp of all these things. For them, it would have sounded very culty, right? Like the early church was even persecuted because they were accused of being cannibals who ate and drank each other's blood. That was a thing. Like Justin Martyr had to actually uh, bring clarity to that because the early church had become associated with cannibalism. That's wild. You know why? This language was strange, even to them in the first century. So this language isn't striking just because it's old and irrelevant to us today. It's striking because it's weird. <laughs> and it was then too. Because, And there, there's a reason for it. it there's an intentionality here. He is intentionally using words that would have been out of place even for the Corinthians. He's saying, don't normalize this. It's not normal. You're not just throwing a party. He's making it clear that this isn't about lunch. It's about something way deeper, way older, and way more significant. He's using language here that would have been connecting them to to things that Jesus did before he was crucified, And also to these ancient stories that were in the Old Testament. Remember, the Corinthians would have had the Old Testament as their Bible. They would have been learning things about the Old Testament that God had been doing. Things that took place before Jesus in order to understand who Jesus is. And so, let's go back, first and foremost, to the night that Jesus was betrayed. That's what Paul does here. Let's go back to the night before, when, the night before Jesus was crucified, when he was betrayed. And he's a, it's a reference to Judas who betrays him and sells him out to the soldiers. And so the night Paul mentions here is just before he was crucified. And he wants us to remember, which is very important. Say remember. He wants us to remember what it was that Jesus sat down to celebrate that night with his disciples before he was crucified. He's taking us back. And what they were celebrating was the Passover feast, a very ancient feast, a very ancient feast that was a celebration of how God had delivered his covenant people from slavery in Egypt. A long time before that. In fact, that would have been just as removed for them as they are removed from us today, timeline-wise. Okay? So for them, this is an old, ancient story that he's referencing and saying you're a part of something bigger. And so God tells Moses at that time to tell all of his people to sacrifice a lamb to consume its body and paint its blood up and down the wooden doorposts across the frame of their doors, over their homes, and on the doorposts, like this, right? And so this is, God tells Moses to tell all these people um, that that night the angel of death is going to be sent out over all of Egypt and it's going to take the life of the firstborn son in each family, unless that family has the blood of the lamb covering their doorposts and the top doorframe. Blood on the wood. Bring anything up for you? This is very much a prophetic image of the cross and the blood of the cross, the literal sacrificial lamb's blood on the cross. They was all looking forward to that. And so for those under the blood of the lamb, in this Old Testament story, the angel of death would pass over them the next morning. Um, they, they wake up, and that's exactly what had happened. And so the, the firstborn children, the firstborn son of each family that did not have the blood of the lamb over their door frames was killed. And one of the lives that was taken was the firstborn son of Pharaoh himself, the most high king of the land. Get the imagery. This is a powerful image in the Old Testament. The firstborn king, I'm sorry, the firstborn son of the Most High King, his life was taken. But for the Israelites who faithfully took refuge under the blood of the lamb, they were passed over. They were spared. There was salvation for them. So it's through the death of the Pharaoh's son and through the blood of the lamb that God's covenant people, Israel, were released from their captivity. And so it's through this Old Testament, every year Israel would gather in Jerusalem and look back to what God had done for them as a covenant people, and they celebrate this Passover. And they would feast on wine, and they would feast on bread, and they would bring with them their lambs to sacrifice in the temple. But here Jesus holds up bread and the wine that signified the blood of the lamb, and he says, follow this, I don't have time to get into all the details there. There's a lot. It's pretty awesome. But track with me. Jesus sits down. He's celebrating Passover, Incidentally, there's no lamb there. or is there? He is the Lamb. And so he sits down with him and he says, "This is my body, which is for you, and this is my blood." Now, for anyone familiar with Passover, that would have been. Shocking! Like, remember, these disciples were Israelites. Like, their entire lives revolved around this most famous feast of Passover. This was their Christmas. Like, this was everything for them. It was Easter. It was Easter, Christmas, all of it, all in one in the Passover feast. And so they knew this story inside and out. Their entire society and culture and even the temple itself revolved around the sacrificial lambs of God. And that was the only way that you could be made right with God and come into his presence. And now here's Jesus saying, this wine, this, this, that for centuries has represented the blood of the sacrificial lamb who takes away our sins and sets us free, yeah, that's me. This is my blood. Now, this is, for centuries, if any of you are familiar with this concept, or even a lot of the division surrounding communion and what's caused a lot of confusion, for centuries, people have argued about what Jesus meant when he said, this is my body or this is my blood. Wars have literally been fought over whether the bread and wine is somehow transubstantiated into the actual body and blood of Christ when it's blessed or if it's all just symbolic. But I want you to hear me. Again, we are so prone to miss. The point. Like the thing that would have been so striking about this statement to the disciples around that table would not have been the word is. It would have been the word my. In other words, They wouldn't be wondering if the bread turned into something else. They would have been amazed that Jesus was saying, I am that sacrificial lamb who covers you and protects you from death. I am the bread of life. This is my blood. Like like that which you have celebrated and remembered for centuries was always pointing to what I'm about to do at the cross tomorrow. That's what was happening. The literal center point of history was taking place right then. Because the Old Testament is about how God established a covenant with the people of Israel. It wasn't just a a contract, it was a covenant. In other words, even when they failed to live up to their end of the deal, God would pay the price for them. You see, this is the difference between a contract and a covenant. A contract is inherently self-protective. But a covenant is inherently self-sacrificial, okay? This is, uh, hopefully, this will bring a lot of clarity to what an actual covenant marriage is versus the contracts that this society sets up, okay? So we live in an extremely transactional society because we live in a simple, self-centered, and insecure society. Like, this is the world we live in apart from God. And so it shouldn't be a surprise that capitalism works best in a society whose God is greed, right? And I'm not knocking capitalism. Like, I I actually think it's the best system we've got in this fallen world. I'm actually really thankful for it. Side note, it's also another reason to live generously for God's kingdom when you realize how ensnaring the God of money is in our culture, right? Because that's what motivates most people is their own self-gratification, greed, these things, okay? Um, But when you live in a world where sin runs rampant, contracts are actually really helpful, (laughs) right? And all the lawyers said, amen. (laughs) To contract, though, is self-protective. Like, the idea is we enter into a deal, and if you break your end of the deal, I'm out. And if I break my end, you're out. Like, if you go to the 7-Eleven and you buy a Red Bull, like, you give them money and they give you a Red Bull. That's the contract. No money, no Red Bull. No Red Bull, no money. That's a transactional contract. Makes sense. Praise God. If you don't produce at work, you get fired. If your quota fails, your job's at risk. My son plays baseball. He's become a pretty good pitcher. Um, it's really nerve-wracking for me, like way more than I thought it would be. I'm like, I never got this nervous actually playing. And now my 10-year-old is out there, and it's like, Ugh. but But um, part of that is because I know that Him being on that mound is 100% a transactional, contractual situation. Like, as long as he's striking people out, he stays in the game and he keeps pitching. But the moment he starts walking people or he starts getting hammered, he's going to hit the bench. It's a transactional relationship, right? And then when that happens, guess what? He needs a covenantal embrace. He needs to know that he's loved unconditionally because he's not identified by that transactional situation. That doesn't bleed over into his other relationships. Does that make sense? That's a tough one to get. That's a tough one to get because these aren't bad principles to employ in this life, but you've got to delineate when it's transactional and when it's covenantal. Because in so many ways, those contractual things, they're, they're important, but the problem comes when we apply transactional contractual thinking to relationships that were designed by God to be covenantal. like covenant marriage, family, or the church. It's easy to confuse these things, and when we do, it creates all kinds of insecurities and offenses. Like if I'm not bringing anything to the table in these relationships, then I'm going to be left out, so I've got to strive to be the smart one or the pretty one or the cool one. I've got to show that I'm enough, that I'm bringing something to the table, that I deserve to be here. And if I don't, then I'm going to be shamed. I'm going to be cast out. I'm going to be set aside, forgotten. i got to fight for myself to get a seat at the table. To belong. It's easy to take offense. When you're operating under a self-protective contract, you're you're not living up to your end of the deal. I'm out. That's a plague on relationships that are covenantal. And all the married people said, what are my friends offering me? Who's taking care of me? Who's inviting me? Who's leaving me out? But listen to me, that's not how God approaches us, nor is it how he desires us to approach him or even one another. A covenant isn't self-protective, it's self-sacrificial. Where a contract says, if you break your end, you pay, and if I break my end, I pay, a covenant says, if you break your end of the deal, I pay, and if I break my end of the deal, I also pay. A covenant is an unconditional pursuit of unity and relationship even when it hurts even when it's costly, and that's exactly the kind of relationship God entered into with Israel in the Old Testament. Way back then, even, God knew they would not be able to live up to their end of the deal, and that deal was the law. You see, the point of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant was to show them their deep need for a Savior, that it's broken and they can't handle it the demand he placed on them under the Old Testament was the demand of the law to live up to this or die. But even under the Old Covenant, there was hope through the blood of the Lamb. It was a picture even of something unconditional. So for those under the Old Covenant in the Old Testament, when they celebrated Passover, the wine, which represented the blood of the sacrificial lamb, was always pointing them to what Jesus would one day do. So as they looked Forward to the cross, we now in the new covenant look back to what's already been done for us. That's why the cross is the center point of all eternity. And so the covenant for us has been made new because the weight of the law that separated us from God that he wanted us to feel has been fulfilled by Jesus Christ on our behalf. So, for us in the new covenant, this supper isn't just about what God would one day do or will one day do, it's about what He's already been done for us in Christ. It is finished. This is the gospel that God became a man and He lived the life that we could not live and He died the death that we deserve to die. He conquered sin, death and the grave through the resurrection. And by doing so, he split the veil of separation between us and him, and he paved the way to eternal life. And it's an eternal life that doesn't just start one day when we die. It starts the moment we place our faith and hope in him. That's now. Now. And his spirit fills us and transforms us from the inside out. And the invitation is to come to the table. Of fellowship and intimacy and friendship with God? That's a wild invitation. It's to come and recline at table with the Creator, not to just stand there and stare up at the lofty throne that's distant. He came down and reclined with us at table. That's an intense thought. You know what's more intense? when we refuse to come. Think about this. This is part of why we take communion every week. Like, it's a reminder of his grace and even the spiritual encounter with his face. Like, now, hear me, like other churches, they, they do celebrate it like only once a month or even some even once a quarter. And hear me, I'm not knocking it, that's great. Um, For us, it's not about something we have to do, okay? This isn't like a religious thing that we, if you don't do it, you're a bad church. That's not what we're talking about here. That's not what we're saying. We don't have to take communion. We get to, right? And so if we miss a week for whatever, it's okay. We're not like sacrilegious people, (laughs) like calm down. But I do want you to see the why behind the what. In fact, I want you to see how it plays into our covenant community that's gathering each week as a local church, which leads me to the second experiential reminder and celebration that we get through communion, and that is the new community that we share in Christ. So many of you have grown up in sort of those more Uh, liturgical or traditionally religious environments where the pastor or or priests, you know, they're wearing robes and there's a bunch of like candles and incense going on and it's kind of like, this is strange, I don't understand, a little culty. Right? And it can become that. That's why the world actually perceives it that way. But the truth is, is that a lot of that stuff is highly intentional. And so You know, you might even get some of those old languages like Latin and strange rituals that are happening all around. But if you don't know why, then it loses its power. And so the truth is, often, there's extremely deep intentionality behind it all. But again, it loses its power when when the focus becomes on the ritual itself instead of the one it's all pointing to. Okay? And so what I want to do is take a brief moment and help you to see the why behind the what and even how communion fits into our covenant community each week in the services that we participate in, okay? So uh, like I've mentioned before, this this might be an eye-opener for some of you, and you're going to be like, wow, we are way more traditional than I thought we were. Like just because I'm not rocking a robe doesn't mean we don't do things like this, okay? Um, So... Uh, a lot of what we do is actually connected uh, with a lot of the things in the Bible, Old Testament stuff. I mean, I've mentioned before how God established the sacrificial system in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant with his covenant people, Israel, right? And So you may be surprised to find out how much of what we do on Sunday morning is actually connected to how God revealed himself on a regular basis consistently to his people, even in the Old Testament. So God, follow me, God sets Israel apart as his own people, and he develops a community that revolved around the very indwelling presence of God himself in their midst, through the tabernacle or the temple, eventually, that was built, okay? So he gives them the law, the Ten Commandments and all these things, and he and he tells them to place it in the Ark of the Covenant, you know, that thing in Indiana Jones, that, that thing, okay? Um, the Indiana Jones, not true. Ark of the Covenant, true, okay? Got me? All right. which that, So then that gets placed They built this temple, and they put the Ark of the Covenant that had the law of God in it, and they put it in the middle of this temple behind a massive, 70-foot-tall, 3-foot-thick veil or curtain. And this room is called the Holy of Holies because in that room, where the Ark of the Covenant was, it was the manifest presence of God, all right? Now, it's not a coincidence, P.S., that the manifest presence of God's spirit is presented along with God's word. That God reveals himself to us in spirit and in truth. You've got the law in the Ark of the Covenant. God's word is in there, and his presence is residing in this. They're not separated. They're together. You follow me? That'll preach all on its own. But what I want you to see here is that God is spirit, okay? And he is omnipresence, which means he is everywhere. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. But there are times where God's manifest presence is revealed in a palpable, tangible, and even intense manner. And it's here in the Holy of Holies, in the Old Covenant, that God was pleased to dwell in a manifest way, right in the center of the temple. So follow me now. So regular worship would take place in the temple. God's people would even take pilgrimages. They would travel consistently to the temple from all over. It was what set God's people in the Old Testament apart. They would go to this place, they would gather together, and they would travel up this mountain, up to Mount Zion, upon which the temple sat. And as they did, they would sing these songs of ascent or praise in anticipation of this encounter with God. If you're reading through the Psalms, you'll see that some say psalm, a psalm of ascent. It meant that it was a song that was to be sung as you were approaching the temple to worship God. Isn't that cool? And so they would sing and they would remember as they're walking, they're preparing their hearts for worship even as they worship. And so they're walking and and they're thanking God for who he is as they come up to meet with him. And then the temple itself was designed with these multiple courts that they would pass through as they enter into God's manifest presence. Now each court With each court, this anticipation and this fellowship with one another would build. There would be choirs and singing happening. Worship and praise and fellowship was taking place. There were all of the smells and the sights and all of these things as they're moving in closer and closer toward the holy of holies. And the people during this process, they'd give tithes and they'd give alms and they'd give offerings and and then a sacrifice would be offered on behalf of their sins. In this place and space, there was an encounter and there was worship to the living God and it was all screaming the gospel. And yet, there was a veil. There was still distance and separation under the old covenant. They would even send in the high priest on behalf of the people. But it all was done under the blood of the lamb. And there was a veil. separation. Now, you might be thinking, what does all that have to do with us? When Jesus took the penalty of sin and he declared it is finished on the cross, it's not insignificant that what we see there is that this 70-foot tall, three-foot thick veil is separated, that separated humanity from the Holy of Holies gets torn in two from top to bottom. God did it. We're told throughout the New Testament that the Spirit now fills His people. That the local church as a people has become the temple in which His Spirit is pleased to dwell. And there is even a special and dynamic power and presence available when we gather together around His Word and for His purpose as His new covenant community. Okay? So, what does this have to do with? How we gather So this building is not the temple. You are. This place becomes church when we gather. You go on the beach, church. If we're gathering together, church. We're baptizing people in the ocean, church. Okay? Praise God for buildings. That's a whole nother sermon. Who So? When Jesus took the penalty of sin, he, he separates it. So now we're operating this way. And again, we hold all our traditions with an open hand, but the way we structure the service is actually designed to usher you into the spiritual throne room and even the Holy of Holies now. Like from the moment you turn down the street and into the parking lot, everything is intentional. The flags, the signs, the tent, the greeters, the fellowship. Right? We've gathered and prayed for you already this morning. All of these things are really intentional. And as you, as you enter in, we kick things off with a song of praise. And as we enter in together, you'll notice that the host, the welcome person, the songs, the reading of the word, it all becomes more and more intentional. It's like walking through the different courts immersed in song and praise and fellowship and prayer and then God's word is preached and the gospel is put on display. But wait a minute. This is not the climactic moment of our service. This is not the Holy of Holies as, as, uh, that's on display. You know what is? Communion. Everything I'm doing here is to set up that moment of encounter between you and Jesus and us and Jesus himself together as we do this in community under the new covenant. Because the veil is torn the invitation to come and meet with him and one another is on the table. And so do I think the elements become his physical body and blood? No. (laughs) But let's not react to that and miss out on the very real encounter with the living God. Like this is an invitation to fellowship with the living God and his beloved family. Now, does that mean you can't fellowship with him on the beach by yourself? Of course not. That's some nonsense. Go do it. Pray with him. Walk with him. He lives in you. But there is a powerful dynamic that you cannot ignore when his church comes together, when his covenant people who are in relationship together come together and celebrate who he is and what he has done. There's significance there. And so uh, hear me now. It's an invitation to fellowship with the living God and his beloved family. And I want you to feel it. (laughs) I do. But it's not just about a feeling. Like we're standing on what's true. And so as we come together, as we behold him together, he will meet us there. It doesn't take away from the power just because you don't feel like it's powerful. Okay? So it's significant. This is what the new covenant communion and community is about. So we're reminded that there's nothing that you can do to make him love you anymore. And there's nothing you have done that can make him love you any less. And if you don't get that in yourself, look around at other people and they can help you remind it. Because this is what the new covenant community is about. We're reminded that it is in fact finished. And we can in fact take our place at the table with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit along with his covenant people. And so when we turn it into this this sterile ceremony, it loses its relational power. That's why every time we celebrate, I get up and say, this is not just a religious ritual. It is an experience of the gospel and the spirit of God himself. Guys, ultimately, this is an invitation into community with God. Intimate acceptance and approval. His spirit is available in a dynamic and experiential way because of what Christ has done. And so when we come to this table, we're saying yes to his sacrifice and yes to his spirit. We're saying yes to his grace and we're saying yes to his face, his lordship in our lives, this intimacy. It's an act of worship and praise and it's even a place of encounter. And so this is a table that's only for Christians because the only way that you can approach that throne is through the blood of Christ. That's it. It's exclusively for those who receive grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. But that invitation is for everybody. So it's exclusive in that it's through the blood of Christ, but it's inclusive in that it is for anyone who would come by the blood. By faith in him. No matter what your background is or what your morning was like this morning or whether you chewed your kids out or kicked a cat or whatever it is. It doesn't matter how you're feeling. This is about receiving what's true and taking your place at the table with God and his family. And in that moment when you see who he is, you will love people like he loves them and you'll be like, sorry, kitty. See? Because he changes us. And you talk to your children in a way that's different. And there's a place of repentance in this place and space. Not condemnation, conviction. And he changes us. And there's a place for you at this table. It's not a stuffy, overbearing table with an angry father at the end. That's not what this is. If you are in Christ, that is not what's going on. This is a table of fellowship and joy. Like you ever been to somebody's house and you're like scared to say the wrong thing or use the wrong fork or you're like, man, I'm just going to sit here quietly and God make this end quickly. You know, I don't want to say something dumb or like it's stuffy and like, oh, gosh, I just want to get out of here. I'm just going to try to not make a fool of myself. We've all been in those environments, right? Some of you might feel like you're in that environment right now. I want you to know this place is a safe space, okay? And everybody said? Okay. So, So in those places, though, what happens? Your attention tends to focus on yourself. What am I doing? Right? Or not doing. You're walking on eggshells, and you can't wait to leave. That's transactional. That's contractual. That's not the kind of communion God desires with us, nor is it the kind of communion that he desires us to have with each other. So his place is a place of rest. It's a place of safety. It's a place of grace. Guys, he already knows everything about you. You're not hiding anything. And so he's an, he, this is an invitation to come as you are. It doesn't mean you stay there. It doesn't mean you ignore sin. Neither does he. But even when he calls us out and calls us up, it's because you, you're loved and not condemned. And so we, we can relax and lean into him because he's not our enemy. In fact, you, you know, they didn't use chairs in the first century. They, they, they didn't. They would actually have laid down on a pillow and share from the same table on the floor. This is, it, it, honestly, an extremely relaxing environment. They would have literally reclined at table with Jesus around the Lord's Supper. That's what this would have looked like. It, in fact, um, it was extremely relaxing. You know that famous painting from the Last Supper? I think we use it on the title slide. It was Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper. That's, is, for some reasons, people think that somebody had a camera back then and like, was able to like take That's not, like, Da Vinci has no idea what it looked like. He was not there, okay? Um, Da Vinci's old, but he ain't that old, right? So, um, and and that painting's actually pretty inaccurate. Uh, So for a chair, a chair for them in that time in the first century would have been more like a lofty and even unapproachable throne to them. Again, Jesus doesn't sit on a throne. He does sit on a throne, but in this place of, his place of throne, the throne room, he comes down. And he reclines with us at table and he eats with us. That would have been wild. That would have been a wild thought for a first century Jew. And he he eats with sinners. That's crazy. Like the power of community is that Jesus is inviting you to recline with him at this table, to relax and lean in, to not be afraid to tell him in any given moment throughout the day what you're struggling with, or simply to just tell him how good he is and approach the king and relax with him, just to cultivate that kind of awareness of his presence with you throughout the day, these little prayers, little acknowledgements, and acknowledging him in all that you do. It develops and cultivates relationship. Like You're not alone, and God is not your enemy if you are in Christ. Now, if you're outside of Christ, if you haven't received grace by faith in Christ alone, then, then you need to know that you are his enemy. He has extended grace to you in Christ, but it must be... Re- received through confession and repentance, turning to him and away from that sin and belief in him. Like all of humanity stands condemned before God as sinners outside of grace in Christ. But in Christ, because of the cross and resurrection, that feeling of hostility, if you're in Christ, that feeling, that sense of eggshells, that's all it is, is a feeling. And this communion table is the reminder of what is true. And we need communion and we need covenant community to remind us of the new covenant and the forgiveness of sins and that true identity that we have in Christ because that's what brings true transformation from the inside out. To come to the table along with the family of God. You see, there's a reason why communion the Lord's Supper um, and, and the Lord's Table, these, are, these have become synonymous phrases. Like in the ancient world, you didn't eat with people you didn't know, right? In fact, the God's covenant people were not allowed to even really eat with Gentiles or sinners. Like to share a meal was to share friendship. You would never eat with your enemies. That's a good way to get poisoned, right? <laughs> like there's vulnerability associated when you recline at table with others because you cast off all of those eggshells and barriers. It's actually an ancient act of friendship and unity, community, communion. This is the kind of relationship that we have in Christ. This is the kind of relationship he's called us to have with one another, but that's easier said than done. And now now some of you may be thinking about how thankful you are for the gospel community and friendships that you have and that God surrounded you with. But others of you, and I want to speak to you real quick, some of you right now may be critiquing your relationships and wishing people would just be more accepting of you. Like maybe you're thinking you have to walk on eggshells around her or him or this environment. But here's the thing about this new gospel community that Jesus provides and calls us into. We're not just called to find community. We're called to build it. I'm going to say that one again. You're not just called to find community. You're called to build it. This is why I'm so excited about these community groups. Like, you're not looking for the community group that you're like, man, these are definitely my people. They're just like me, right? Guys, if everybody's just like you, that's not necessarily the healthiest community in the world, okay? But remember, if you're looking for the perfect community to meet you where you are and be the perfect friend to you, then you're not gonna be a really good friend. To others because you're still focused on yourself. Okay? Seriously, I, I wanna let you in on a little pastoral secret. I get one of those like 35,000 foot views. To make friends, it's important to be friendly. <laughs> I know that sounds radical, but to make friends, it's important to be friendly. Right? Now, I'm not, I, praise God for how friendly our church is. I love how friendly our church is. And, and the community that God is building here and has built. But this is also a really difficult thing because oftentimes people are difficult. Sinners, well, they sin. <laughs> and so grace is necessary. Because people can be rude, they can be hurtful. But this is why this new community in Christ is different from every other kind of community. It's because your love for one another isn't dependent upon their love for you. Your smile isn't contingent upon their smile returning or you waiting for them to smile and reach out. Your embrace, your invitation, your consistent, and even persistent offer of hospitality and prayer and encouragement or compassion is not contingent upon anything other than the immeasurable riches of what's already been done for you in Christ and what you have in him now. That's what sets us apart. Like he, is the source, He is our strength, He is our joy, even if nobody else is around us. That's the calling. This is what sets gospel community apart. It's not that the church loves perfectly, it's that she's perfectly loved. And when she beholds and receives that love, it wells up and it spills over. And Jesus made it clear that this would be our greatest tool for accomplishing his great commission of making disciples who make disciples in this world. That's what sets us apart. John 13 and John 17. John is, I'm sorry, Jesus. John makes it clear that Jesus is clear that most of the, our most effective evangelism strategy is our unity and our love for each other. So clear. Listen to me. <laughs> Listen, church. The greatest impact our church will have long term will not be because the worship music is amazing, or because the preaching is on point or on time. It, it, it's not because the, bu- the the building is beautiful. All of that is just a means to the ultimate purpose, guys. All of it is it, it, all the ultimate catalyst of the kingdom is the way that we share life in Christ with each other and our city and beyond. It'll be the way that you point one another to Jesus. It'll be the way you remind one another of what's true in Christ. It'll be the way that you engage the stranger and embrace them into real gospel community. It'll be the way you proclaim and demonstrate grace when things don't go the way you expect in your marriage or your career. Or when people don't treat you the way you feel like you deserve. It'll be in the way you take that perceived entitlement and set it underneath the cross. And you say, God, just thank you. You've all, you're all I've got. Because, man, that stuff will suck the joy of life right out of you. But not when you realize the immeasurable riches you have in Christ. Because that is the wellspring of all true security and true strength. Sometimes it's, it's the way that we suffer that actually provides the greatest witness to the world. It's not because you're so strong or so resilient, but it's because you've already tapped into the source of life and circumstances don't determine what is good and true and joyful in your life. But again, it requires intentionality. It requires reading his word and praying and gathering with his people consistently and letting his spirit fortify you throughout the day, not just on Sunday. This is about abiding and abiding in and walking with Jesus. And when you fall short of that, recognizing it in humility that you don't have what it takes, but he does. And you can still rest and recline at table with him and his people. Because the only way real covenant community functions is when you've tapped into the measurable riches available to us in Christ Jesus. So our commission to make disciples who make disciples of Jesus, it comes directly from the overflow of being disciples of Jesus. And then the final thing, we'll wrap up with this. The final thing we're reminded of and participate in during communion is, we've already said it, our new commission from Christ. Look at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So I mentioned to you that the climactic point of our service is communion. It's the invitation to come to the table by coming forward. It's not just an encounter. It's a proclamation to everybody in the room of what you believe and where your hope is. So we're looking back to what he's done for us at the cross. And we're also looking forward to his eventual return at the day of judgment because this isn't all there is in this life this is just a blip on the eternal radar. But our service here, it doesn't end with communion. Like we actually close our service every week with the great commission, right? We commission you to take these truths to the street, to carry the rule and reign of Jesus and his spirit with you in everyday life. It's why our, we end with, with the commission to go with God. You have been commissioned. Like just because we're not together doesn't mean you cease to be the church right? In so many ways, Sunday gatherings and midweek gatherings are all designed to equip and empower you to be his hands and feet in the world and in your family. It's a reminder of who we are and whose we are. This is why community groups are such an important part of what we do, and I'm excited again for what God has in store um, in and through our church. And so the band can come up. Um, I'm going to transition now directly into communion. Um, so again, uh I mean, what else can I say about communion, right? A lot, actually. Um, But I want you to see that communion is a place of invitation. It's a place of turning away from our fears, say fears, and replacing it with faith in our Savior and King, okay? I want you to see fear will corrupt your communion with God. Fear corrupts the new covenant. It corrupts new communion and it will corrupt your new commission by turning you away from your savior and inward upon yourself. Fear twists the new covenant of grace into self-centered works and works righteousness. Fear convinces you that you're not good enough and therefore you've got to earn your place at this table. Fear tells you that you'll never belong in this new community and that you'll always be an outsider or that everyone else must be the uh, reason why you can't seem to get along or can't seem to get connected. Fear will lead you to legalism and fear will lead you into isolation. Fear corrupts our, also our commission. It turns us in on ourselves and it causes us to be self-centered, self-oriented. And so when we gather, fear will cause you to come to church or community group only if you feel like it has something to offer you. It's the eggshell feeling. Self-sacrifice or serving and encouraging others gets sent way down the priority list when fear takes hold of your heart. The church isn't just another tool for self-gratification or glorification designed to feed your own entitlement. Like, fear takes our eyes off of faith in Christ, but this is the power of our reminder this morning is that as we gather and commune as his people, we behold his glory and his grace and his goodness Fear fear will tell you that you won't be accepted and you should just stay at home, but but, but faith says it's bigger. He's greater. Fear will tell you that you're not smart enough or good enough or even Christian enough to talk to your friends about Jesus. It'll corrupt that commission and make it all about just your everyday life of just pursuing your own comforts. Fear will tell you that you shouldn't get baptized because people will think you're a hypocrite. Fear will tell you that you you shouldn't come talk to people or join a community group. It'll it'll paralyze you. But you can break those chains right now through faith in Christ and just trusting him. And the best way to break those chains of fear is to just take them to the Lord. like Literally just to talk about these things to him. Instead of just trying to figure it out on your own and strive and make it better, even right now, whether in your own spirit or even out loud, I just want to encourage you to, to... Ask him to break those specific chains of fear in your life. What are they that are corrupting my, that that may be corrupting my reception of covenant community and commission? Like saying, God, I I know you want me to get baptized, but I'm afraid people will think I'm a hypocrite. God, I, I know you want me to join a community group, but I'm afraid people will judge me or I'll be rejected. Or maybe it's simply, God, all my attention is on myself and I'm trying to control the world around me instead of entrusting my life and the lives of everyone else around me to you. And so God, I surrender control and I surrender fear to you this morning because you are a good king. And so on the night before Jesus was crucified, he sat down with his disciples. I should say sat down, he reclined and he holds up wine, I'm sorry, he holds up bread and he says, this is my body broken for you. Take of it and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And then he holds up wine and he says, this is my blood poured out for you. Take of it and eat, I'm sorry, take of it and drink and do this in remembrance of me. It's a sign of the new covenant, the forgiveness of sins. By coming forward this morning, you're saying, God, I'm a Christian, I'm in I trust in you with my whole life and my whole heart. Help me, Lord, in areas where I'm struggling. I believe, help my unbelief. If that's you, I want to invite you to come forward. But if you're not ready to do that, then I would ask that you stay at your seat, that you continue to come, join with us, pray, meditate. We want to walk through this life with you.